This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is by far the easiest way to begin filming your hunts. Whether it's the 4K 5.0 or the budget-friendly solo, Tacticam has something for everyone. Check them out at Tacticam.com. This year we're also working with Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is machine learning for the deer woods. Basically, Spartan Forge takes collar deer studies, insurance car deer accident information, social media geolocations, and it couples that with weather, moon phase, and rut activity to tell you when or when not to be in the woods. This currently has an online interface at SpartanForge.ai, but the app is currently being built and set to launch late summer. Once the app goes live, you can expect there to be a price increase. But if you use code BOWHUNTER, you can save 25%, and that will stick with you as long as you use the Spartan Forge services. So head on over to SpartanForge.ai and get your free 14-day trial. All right, everybody, we're back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. This one you guys are really going to like. Uh, Dieter is... A UP bow hunter who is killing mature whitetails in some really desolate country. So, I mean, I've got a cabin up there, and the, our family does. And, I mean, cedar swamps, there's just about everything that you can imagine uh, where he's at with some rocks and kind of almost like mountainous terrain. Um, and the deer are kind of scattered. Um, we talk a little bit about what the UP once was, uh, but there's a lot of information on using a couple different tactics to kind of track these deer, um, you know, how he's setting up his trail cams, uh, some mock scrape stuff, uh, mineral sites. This one's going to be a great podcast for everybody. A um, little bit of uh, bookkeeping here. 
um, with our Patreon. We've got our giveaway um, to do uh, for last quarter. That's the B stand. I'm looking at it right now, uh, as well as the fisheye cameras from um, Tacticam and uh, Zinger Fletching's Spartan Forge, all that. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and we still have that bow to give away. So before the next episode airs, before next Wednesday, we're going to give that stuff away. Edwin, we're going to give that bow away. So uh, sorry if I don't call your name, <laughs> but Edwin gets on me just about every single day uh, through the Marco Polo group for our Patreons. And what is Patreon? Patreon is a crowdfunding for creators. So basically... Um, they donate money to the show to keep it going. Um, all of the uh, hosting, website, all the things that are associated with that. And we take a large portion of that money and put it right back into giving away things. So everything that I just outlined, that was for last quarter. We do quarterly giveaways. And this quarter we're going to be giving away a Latitude Method um, I haven't talked to them about it, but I'll just buy one. Um, we'll give away one of those. Uh, I've got the new classic. John has the Method XL. And uh, me not being a two-panel saddle guy, um, that one, the way that the magnets work, um, it, it's it's making me think I might need to try one of those for this year for sure. Um, but then uh, if you go to our YouTube um did a little video and we did a whole podcast on um, kind of like the tethered one sticks and everything that was going around with those uh, tethered. I just tried to get my hands on some before they came out and they sent me a set and they said, um, you know, use these, test them, try them, um, you know, do a little review on them. Um, and then you can do whatever you want with them, you know, but you know, if you, if you, we would like you to give them away. So we are going to give those away. So we're going to be giving away, uh, latitude method or method XL and a set of tethered one sticks. Um, and I'll figure out what we need to do. We'll probably have to give away a platform. So, um, I will try to come up with something. Maybe we'll give away one of the new XOP platforms. I'd like to get my hand on, hands on one of those. Um, uh, but we'll once again, give away a brand new, um, uh, full saddle kit. So we're going to set somebody up with that. We will be giving away another uh, Spartan Forge um, membership. And Spartan Forge, that membership, that price is just going to go up. That app is right on the precipice of coming out. Um, there's a beta that's out there. Bill shared screenshots with it. I need to get him back on this podcast to go through all of that with us. But he is getting ready to retire from the military, retire from the Army, I believe, on the 15th of this month. Um, so he's going to have some free time after that and hopefully we can catch up on a podcast but spartan forge is going to be giving away um one of their one-year subscriptions to their apps base map if you haven't checked out base map base map has um a free version uh, you can go on there and try some of their stuff they give away uh each week they have their gear drop um it We've been using it extensively. Um, they've added a bunch of new features. They've part partnered with a couple new companies. We're going to be having Ed back on here uh, very shortly uh, to talk about that. They have this new feature where it's a, um, a range uh, overlay. Um, so you can see the distance it is to the waypoint that you're trying to get to. And um, as accurate as it may or may not be um, in the dark when you're within 
I mean, we've all been within 50 or 100 yards of that tree that we marked back in the summer. And you're like, which one was it? Which direction? And you know what 20 yards is, 30 yards is, 40 yards is in the dark. So, you know, it can, you can be one tree off or two trees off, um, you know, because you didn't quite go far enough. Um, and this is going to tell you kind of like how far away it is. And it's, it's really cool. Um, when that popped up on there, I was really happy. You can use code chronicles uh to save 20 percent on a base map subscription you have to do that online um but base map is giving away a swag pack so that's a hat a shirt and uh one year membership to their pro membership and you should definitely check that out i mean using that code i mean it's 30 dollars a month any or 30 excuse me 30 dollars a year for the entire country for all the layers and you know, with that code, it ends up being $2 per month, $24 for the entire year. So um, if you're interested in helping us out with Patreon and getting in on some of those giveaways and things, um, you know, our Marco Polo group is basically a bunch of like-minded guys that are talking, hunting. It's 24-7. I got back from my up north um, 4th of July weekend, and uh, I think I had 45 messages to go through and uh, check out so and i said if you're not familiar with marco polo it's like snapchat for adults is what i call it but uh, anyways we get to get to talk and converse and you know kind of go, do all the deer camp stuff uh, that you would normally do except for we're all over the country um, and if you're interested in that you can check it out at uh, bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com uh, just click on the patreon link you can go to patreon.com forward slash bowhunterchroniclespodcast or uh, in Instagram, you just click the link in the bio to Patreon and figure out how to do that. Um, we really appreciate those guys. That's where I'm getting all the information on who to talk to for the podcast. I mean, they're essentially the program directors. So we're trying to tailor content directly to uh, the Patreons because we can't do this without them. We thank them so much. Um, but this episode, you guys are really going to enjoy it. I think it's going to cover a lot of different things for a lot of guys in hunting a lot of different country and just the mindset of what it takes in some of these harder uh, areas uh, to kill some of these mature, you know, we're talking six-year-old, seven-year-old deer. Um, you guys are going to love this episode tell somebody about it, leave us a review. Um, you know, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And we are talking with Dieter Cocken. Um, he is from the UP of Michigan, a uh, very experienced hunter. And you're probably saying, who in the world is this guy? Uh, you may have seen him on Facebook posting as Ranger Matthews. He um, films with the uh, Whitetail Addictions guys. And uh, he actually played a little bit of hockey. So you may have seen him uh, from from that. And we'll get into a little bit about that. Um, but how are you doing tonight, Dieter? I'm doing great. How about you guys? We're doing good. It's nice to have John back. You know, I was on vacation, and then John was on vacation. and Yeah, were, if you want to call it a vacation, <clears throat> hiking in Ohio in 94 degrees was not fun. That's why I'm quiet tonight. It's just, man, trying to recover. <laughs> so, uh, for the people who don't know much about you or any of your story, um, l- let's get, like, the, the hunting history uh, for you, like, like growing up, because I'd have to imagine, 
with the hockey and everything, um, you know, John's brother played high level hockey, you know, kind of like his whole life. And it kind of takes up a lot of time, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're, when you're younger and then coming up, you're obviously spending a lot of time playing and then, uh, the season happens right there in the fall. So it's kind of a terrible, terrible time when it uh, relates to hunting, but I definitely got to live in a lot of different areas. I didn't, I wouldn't otherwise been able to live in. I, my family didn't really hunt growing up. So I got to know one of my teammates in high school and I started going out with their family probably when I was about a sophomore or junior and went out with them for a couple years and it was good because they'd basically just kind of point me in a direction I was pretty much on my own I didn't end up seeing anything the first year but it just kind of you know you got to make your own decisions you got to pick your own trees and and learn from from your mistakes and whatever successes you had along the way so after high school I continued playing hockey and that brought me up into Marquette, Michigan, where I played for Northern Michigan University. And that's really where I got my feet wet with Michigan hunting. I was able to meet a lot of people up there and gain some access on some properties and started, you know, shooting whatever walked by Michigan standards wise. So that was a good experience. And then after college i went on to play 10 years professionally mostly in the minor leagues and then some games in the nhl um for any of your michigan listeners i would have played with the detroit vipers the last year they had a team i played with grand rapids griffins and uh mostly in the american hockey league but i got to live in live and hunt in Kentucky, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. And it was, you know, a great experience to see a lot of different whitetail habitats. And you're kind of forced to kind of learn things on the fly, be, you know, very mobile, whether you wanted to or not, just because you're, you'd get there maybe in October, you had to figure things out and then get in the tree and try to get it done. And, you know, I was able to, you know, shoot as many as six deer a year doing that kind of just bouncing around. And I mean, to give some context to it, I mean, I, with, you know, I'm sure we'll end up talking about going after bigger deer and and targeting older, older bucks as we go here. But I mean, I think probably for the first 15 or so years I bow hunted, I, I don't think I let anything walk by with, without flinging an arrow at it. So, I mean, you learn kind of from your mistakes and learn how to effectively kill deer and, and, uh, you know, certainly love to eat venison and the whole experience. So in that time frame, like, I mean, I guess I, I think of, you know, professional athletes and, uh, you know, I think of it more as like a, like a time crunch and like a dedication type thing. So how did you, like avoid say saying, okay, well, I just want to go here. We're here. I want to pay for a hunt over here just to kill something or, or whatever, because I, I guess I would think with, like I say, more of a time constraint, that being like, kind of like the easy road. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I have nothing against doing that. 
uh, I've pretty much just bow hunted my whole life. I've always just enjoyed doing it on my own. I guess I've always thought I'd rather go out and get nothing than have someone set me up on something. Just satisfaction wise, I get so much more out of it than knowing I did it on my own. And, you know, I'm, ha- I'm set, I'm happy to not get anything, but you know, I'm going to do it on my own and see what I can get. So I guess the the day in the life of a professional athlete is, is uh, it's a, it's a good life. So and as long as you're not playing games, you usually practice in the morning, you work out, you're done by, you know, noon, one o'clock. So you have the whole afternoon to, to do what you want. So pretty much every day that we had practice and didn't have a game at night, I went, I went deer hunting. So every chance I got, I was out there and, you know, it was good. I got to hunt a lot of different States, see a lot of different habitat, really figure things out along the way. I think my big turning point would have probably been, I think in the early two thousands, I started hunting scrapes more. I had watched uh, a buck feeder video that actually had everybody's infamous Mitch Rompola in it, who I think actually tremendous amount about hunting mature deer. So I watched that video. I started to hunt more scrapes. And then right around that same time, I read John Eberhardt's book and started using a saddle. So I've been a saddle guy for probably 16 years. So, you know, just, uh, you know, evolving from what I thought I'd known to implementing some of the things that John Eberhardt said in that book that really kind of spelled out a, a good seasonal approach to going after deer and then using a saddle being more mobile and just things that really evolved from there for me and so i guess in that you know we talked a little bit prior to the podcast about what people want to want to hear like what is the pulse of the the podcast listener i think that again would be one of the questions is like what was the moment that it clicked? Because I feel like that moment that you had where, you know, becoming more mobile, switching to a saddle, all that, I think that's kind of like where the mobile hunting industry is right now. So most of your podcasts, most of your podcast listeners, you know, they're doing just that. But, you know, as we talked about on our last podcast here, you can you could switch to a saddle and you could become more mobile, but if you keep hunting the exact same way, you're going to get the exact same results. So I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit about that, that first deer, or maybe that first encounter that said, Hey, maybe this is working and I'm doing it right. And kind of what, what kind of clicked for you in that moment? I guess there were a couple things that kind of clicked for me in a big way. Um, I think a big part of it was I started to hunt all day, especially during the rut. And I probably shoot the vast majority of my deer between probably nine in the morning and one in the afternoon. So, I mean, that could be a combination of things, you know, one where, where I'm positioning myself and what, what looks good to me. I think for anybody out there, the hardest thing to do is to shoot that first big deer after after you shoot the first big one you just look for spots that look the same and hunt them in the same way during the same time of year and you know unless you got totally lucky with the first one you're going to be able to recreate that 
And so I think a lot of guys who are kind of trying to find things are, they're picking their space, they're picking their spots based on what they've, you know, seen other people do or what they've heard and not necessarily what they've kind of learned. So, you know, once you get that first one down, I mean, especially that's the big benefit of public land where you can shoot one in one area and then you, if you look hard enough, you can find another area that looks pretty darn similar compared to, you know, if you're just hunting private, there might be only one location on that property that kind of looks like that. And then, you know, you might end up over hunting it or doing things that, that make it worse. But so, I mean, there's, there's positives and negatives to public land. And, you know, I guess I prefer the bigger, the better. It just gives you a better chance that they have some place to hide and that, you know, what you're going after is going to be a little bit older than, than anything else. And so for your typical season, um, as it stands right now, are you hunting primarily Michigan or are you bouncing around to other states as well? I bounce around the last three years. I went to North Dakota for the opener. And then so I've shot deer two out of three years there. And then I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So I still go down to Southern Wisconsin for, you know, a week to two weeks and then come up to Michigan. And, and honestly, for all the, for all the flack Michigan gets, if I had to pick one state and, you know, part of it's cause I'm up here and I can do a seasonal approach to, to what I'm doing, but I think I enjoy hunting Michigan more than anywhere else just huge pieces of property you don't have to worry about property lines i mean nothing nothing is preventing you from going as far as you can imagine and seeing what's around that next corner and just uh you know the ability to you know you're only confined by how hard you want to work and the more work you put in the the better results you're going to get that's interesting, you know, because you say that, you know, Michigan does get a bad rap, but, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about our Patreon group and stuff like that. And I polled them um, to say, how far is it your average drive to, you know, your nearest public land or the nearest public land spot? And there were a lot of guys out of state that were saying, you know, it's 45 minutes or it's, you know, an hour or two hours or, or whatever. And like, I timed it the other day as I was, as I was driving home and there's public land pretty big by many other States, um, you know, measures like seven minutes from my driveway and I've hunted out there and I've seen bucks out there. And so I, I think maybe the pressure is definitely there for, you know, we have a lot of hunters in Michigan, especially downstate, but, um, you know, I think we do take for granted that, like you said, that we do have that much public land and that much available to us. Especially up in the <clears throat> in the Upper Peninsula. I mean, there's some pretty big stretches up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I was I was googled something with in the UP, and I think 75 percent of it's open for for pump for hunting, whether that's you know state forest land or there's so much paper company land up here so i mean you can hunt i mean three quarters of the entire portion of the up you can go wherever the heck you want so you're you're pretty much limited by your own imagination i mean if you want to hunt hills you can hunt hills you can hunt swamps you can hunt 
this, you can hunt that. Um, you know, I think I hunt probably four different counties that are around me. And I mean, I probably have access to a million acres within a mile in either direction. And you just kind of, you know, like I said, you kind of pick through what's been good for you in the past and look for areas that look like that. And the hardest part is, is finding an older deer to go after. So like, I don't even really concern myself with trail cameras in in other states, just because I mean, like Wisconsin, if you hunt the best areas, you're bound to run into a pretty good buck compared to up here. You could hunt the best area and there just may not be one living there. So, I mean, you have to try to find one. And then once you find them, it seems like once they hit four or five, they've, they're pretty well set avoiding whoever they're going to avoid. So I've, I've gotten on more deer up here year to year to year than, than anywhere else. So that's kind of cool where you get to see them from year to year. I mean, they look, they don't put on, as much as they do anywhere else they're fairly similar racked every year but you know it's definitely a different experience being able to do that compared to you know some areas where they're going to get shot or you know they disappear you can't really you can't go after them because they're on a different property i mean you could follow these deer up here as, as far as you physically capable of so I want to get into, you know, here in a minute, how you're, you're locating these uh, deer and, you know, you'd put a post on Facebook and that's kind of what sparked the idea for this podcast was the way that your, your process throughout the year of, of locating these bucks. But I just want to talk a little bit about like the history of the UP, because I would say that most people downstate here, you know, we talk about you know, back in the day or the heyday, you know, the UP was where you went for these, you know, 200, 250 pound deer, the the biggest bucks. And, you know, now whether it's, you know, we say wolves or whatever, you know, there's the Escanaba in the moonlight, the 30 point buck, all of the allure that goes along with the UP. But it seems like for, for whatever reason, the, deer numbers or at least maybe the perception of deer numbers and the quality of deer has gone down um so what would you say to that being up there and hunting there for for years and years now i i think the the population in general might be on a bit of a decline i remember when i was in college i think the numbers peaked right in the the mid 90s and then i remember driving from Marquette to Sault Ste. Marie and there were probably you know 200 deer on the sides sides of the roads that got hit and I think that was the year where the the population took a crash and I think there's been some things you know definitely where I think it could be managed better you know I think there's you could do a couple things that would probably fix the fix the problem pretty quick but the the deer densities are low um a lot of changes happening with with the population the winters are obviously a, a huge factor but i mean the the white-tailed deer is an incredibly adaptable adaptable creature and you know you can i know areas where i've talked to people you know with blue tongue and all that where you'd think every deer is dead within you know 500 square miles and 
next thing you know, the following year, they're all back. So I think there's, there's ebbs and flows, but I mean, it's, it's a challenge, lower deer densities, but I think, you know, if, if you put the work in, you can get on better deer. I think the, the biggest thing that, that most hunters in the UP, the mistake they make is they're, they're so connected to hunting over bait that unfortunately I think a whole generation has kind of lost a lot of the the woodsmanship. Cause if you talk with, with guys who used to do it back in the day and who can still do it, the guys who track deer footstep track them during gun season are continually shooting big ones every year. So it's just, it's a different style. The bigger deer have learned the, the bait pile game. And I mean, it, if you are going to be dead set on hunting over bait, you're most likely going to see does and, and, and younger deer. Yeah. I mean, so John and I couldn't be more polar opposite. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but my, my family grew up hunting that property in the UP and that's, how we hunted, you know, 99.9% of the time was you threw out your bait pile. I mean, we went so far as they had like, <laughs> as ridiculous as it is, like they had like cabbages on ropes hung from trees. Like I'm not, I, you couldn't make this up if you tried, you know, we weren't the, you know, a legitimate truckload carrot pile, but it was it was just the ritual is that you got up there two days before gun season, you went out to your spot, you dumped your carrots out there, and then you waited for whatever came by. And, you know, I, I would imagine it's probably back in the time maybe that you're talking about. I don't know when I started hunting up there. Um, but before I was hunting up there, it was they killed, you know, these few big deer um there was usually one good deer a year and then in the 30 years after that i can think of you know maybe two really good deer that we killed up there and it was always you know we'd see little bucks and we killed does at no like uh, we didn't care we just killed but we were in menominee county so it was you know the highest deer density you know, at, at that time. Um, so doe permits were not, you know, nothing to get, but as soon as they changed to the antler point restrictions and you, you had to shoot three on one side, I think for your first buck, um, all we saw was spikes and four corns and our property specifically, and we had been, um, doing like a QDM prior to that shooting only three on one side was our rule. And I don't know if the two coincided or what, but our property does not have the genetics that has brow tines. So every deer that we saw, you were looking for, you, you were counting points. And there's probably a lot of deer that lived an extra year because of that. And, you know, I, I don't think that that's a bad thing, um, but we were that, I mean, I'm, I'm coming out of that generation of, you know, hunting over bait and so for me meeting john's family and you know my father-in-law uncle frank on here my wife 
you know, they hunt, they couldn't have hunted any differently than, than yeah, that. I hunted public land and my dad was like, don't even think about bait, you know, it was, <laughs> and it was go out, you know, I mean, my dad killed a ton of deer. But it wasn't any does. You never shot yeah. does. And we weren't allowed to shoot a doe. It was, if it had horns, it was, you know, fair game. And, you know, it's, that, so yeah, it was complete opposite. But And I think baiting can be tremendously effective in some situations. And there's some guys who are really good at it who, you know, they'll, they'll bait frequent enough and they'll check their cameras enough where they know kind of when to dive in and, and get the job done. The hardest part about bait is you can take, you can put bait in a really good spot and you're just basically, you're throwing all your cards on the table and asking the deer, you know, to pretty much make a decision whether or not they want to play the game or not. So they'll start circling you and doing a lot of different things and they'll start to tolerate way less odor and, and you're going to get away with, with way less hunting around bait compared to if you're just if you're moving around being mobile you're going to get away with way more whether it's ground tracks or airborne odor or anything they're just going to tolerate more because they're they're not so keyed into what's going on i mean if anybody who's hunting around bait has seen a doe come in from 100 yards away and she's on pins and needles like she's about to get shot out of a cannon. So, I mean, that behavior is totally different than a deer naturally walking through the woods. So, I mean, there's just a lot of disadvantages to hunting around bait. The, the less people in your area who do it, probably the more effective it can be. You know, there's certain times a year, especially when you get into the, the latter parts where food's going to be a top priority for them, where it can be more effective. But, I mean, I've generally found that you know, especially if I have like a really good location where it's a, you know, bulletproof entry exit, I can hunt it on a bunch of different winds. I'm way better off just being patient and allowing myself to hunt, hunt it multiple times, kind of waiting out for one to come by. Cause it seems like the bigger bucks, they'll kind of roam an area for maybe a week and then they might disappear for a couple weeks and they'll come by. So it's almost like if you don't see anything one day, your chances almost start to improve as you keep going. And if you have a, you know, a good spot and you're not getting winded and you're not really tipping your hand, you can kind of, you know, really sit it out and, and wait for them to come. So in the UP with all that land, all that public land, and I mean, if like John was saying is, I don't know if you said it or John did, but like if, you know, 75% of the land is huntable or available, the, the density of the population density must be very small. What are you dealing with, with uh, pressure and other hunters and, and everything like that? I mean, there's some pressure and I've kind of went back and forth where I've kind of thought, you know, things would be better if they banned baiting, but I, I think it's kind of better for me that baiting's allowed because it makes everybody else more predictable and it's not really that hard to get away from people. So I, I bow hunt straight through the gun season and I don't see any negative effects. I, you know, I'll see people here or there. I've never had a trail camera stolen or anything really messed with to that to that degree so i mean the hunting pressure is way different than what you guys are dealing with 
downstate just because the properties are so huge and like you said the population densities aren't aren't the same and i'm i'm hunting probably i have like five different areas that are probably like twenty thousand acres that i kind of focus on and then depending on what i'm seeing on my cameras i might focus on one area or another area and last year i kind of got stuck trying to kill one particular deer so i pretty much stayed in one area which ended up working out it just took me till december 16th but it's uh it's a different world i mean anybody it's definitely not easy i mean to kill that buck last year i think i hunted 30 days for him 20 all day sits and i went six days in a row without seeing a deer so i mean you have to be willing to mentally deal with that fact and still have confidence that you're going to get get the job done because i mean i think confidence kills more deer than any tactic or any any product or anything because if you're confident even if you're if you're confident hunting average spots you're going to have better results than a guy who has no confidence hunting great spots because you're going to you're going to get up early you're going to be there when you need to be you're going to sit longer you're going to be focused you're not going to be playing with your phone and then you're going to be more prepared to capitalize when you actually get a get an opportunity so when you're hunting these i mean i would say that the properties that i'm talking about down here that we hunt that i say we're above average for most of our out-of-state guys are you know three to five thousand acre pieces so on a twenty thousand acre piece how are you or what is your strategy for breaking it down and finding these big bucks and even year over year i mean they'll be i mean like 12 to 20 somewhere in there but i mean they're big and you just have to you just have to narrow it down to what looks interesting to you i guess i mean some of the spots have like you know more mountainous terrain some of them are you know swamps some are beaver ponds and stuff like that so it's a lot of scouting i think every spring i put on probably a hundred miles walking around and you know in a day you're putting on 10 miles and you might find one or two locations that you like and i'm really keying in on scrapes it seems that those are the only thing that i can get consistent action with you know whether i'm hunting or whether it's my cameras and I think those are, you know, even more so than any other area with a higher deer density. I think they're more important because they kind of tie everything together, whether it's food or, or bedding or they're always near one of those two things. So they, you don't really need to find the bedding because if you're in an area that looks like it would have good bedding and you find a scrape, you're, you're in a location that that's probably going to work out for you. And, you know, I'm only finding one or two scrapes walking around for 10 miles compared to like wisconsin probably 90 percent of the scrapes are useless to hunt compared to you know up here almost all of them are are fairly important for for how the deer are using them so let's talk a little bit about that for and you know i've spoken with and read hal blood's book you know big woods bucks and He's one of the guys out in Maine that does the tracking, right? Yeah. So as you're 
walking this 10 miles or you're looking at this big giant property, you know, is it coming across just any scrape or are there certain, um, like commonalities to, you know, out there, there's like this certain kind of pine tree that he's like, he's like, I'm confident if there's a, a, a rub on this certain kind of pine tree that it's a, it's a signpost rub. So even if I don't have any good tracks or I'm, I'm guiding guys, I can bring them out to this certain type of, you know, terrain feature, or, you know, this specific tree type, right? I think that's his black, black ash tree. I've listened to Hal and I've listened to a lot of different things. And I mean, it's amazing no matter how anybody hunts, if they're having success, there's things that translate to different styles. And he's obviously a tracker. And I've seen a couple signpost rubs similar to what, what he's talking about. Um, for some reason, they don't seem to rub a hole at that much up here. The, the scrapes are important, but then also there's, I did notice that there's these overlooked scrapes that that are way more important than I thought before, and those end up being on balsam firs. And at first, I totally ignored them because it was only like it was about the size of a basketball. And at first, I I walked by one of these for two years in a row, and I kept thinking, God, that looks like a scrape. Ah, there's no, you know no real licking branch or anything, but it looked like it was at the right height and it kind of looked like it might've got pawed at, but I wasn't sure if it was a dried puddle. Then eventually I threw a camera on it and every big buck in the area visited that scrape. And they're most of the times they're on their hind hind legs and they just kind of gently put their face into that, into that, into that tree. And I saw that and I started looking for it in other areas. I'd see it, you know, you could pretty much predict where you'd see it, where if, you know, there was that kind of tree and it didn't have any lower limbs and it was at the right height on a trail, you know, those ended up being, being the scrape. So that was a big tree for me to find. I'm pretty sure it's a balsam fir. I might even be wrong, but so is that. And then, uh, oak trees, maple trees. And then if you're lucky enough to have a apple tree. So those are the, the different scrape trees but i find very few scrapes up there that that aren't important it's just some aren't laid out in areas that are that are easy to hunt so you know if you can find a good scrape in an area where you have an advantage that's a great location and then i'll end up making mock scrapes in areas that'll that are similar with uh you know the right licking branches and all that and then the deer normally pretty quickly take those over. All right. And so with the, the trail camera setups and stuff, like how many trail cameras are you running? How are you monitoring them, you know, throughout the year? Um, Cause it sounds like you have a pretty interesting, like year long strategy for that. Yeah. So I get them out. Most of mine are out. I might, I still have a couple to put out, but, I will put them on mineral. Usually this, some will be on scrapes depending on the scrape, but a lot of them will end up be on a mineral. And the way the law is set up in Michigan, you can't put out mineral now. So you have to almost pre-plan those locations and throw them out the year before and then just bring your cameras back to them. And, you know, there's enough in the dirt there where they'll, they'll be visiting them. So most of the, most of the cameras are on mineral. I'll leave those sit 
all the way till like the beginning of September. Usually when I come back from North Dakota, I'll start moving them all on the scrapes once the deer go into hardhorn. And then based on any information, then I might throw more cameras into a certain area to try to figure figure a particular deer out. And then once those cameras sit from September through, then I'll end up pulling some of them at the opener and then some of them when I come back from Wisconsin, probably at the end of October, November, right in there. So a lot, they're sitting pretty long. Uh, the one disadvantage is a lot of them get messed with. A lot of them last year got messed with with bears and get knocked over and stuff. So you kind of lose some information. And then, you know, some cameras I'll never, ever check till the following year. I just checked two that were sitting since last September in areas I never got back to. And one of them actually had two good deer on it. But so now I have to go back and, and check that area out more. But they're, they're sitting long and the areas are so big that you need cameras to narrow stuff down because the worst feeling is like you scout a location you think it looks good you never ended up hunting it and then the following year you're in the same exact position you were before not knowing if it's any good so even if you don't end up hunting that spot at least you have a camera there so that you're not playing from behind the following year you're getting information and that's kind of how you start to narrow things down and almost every time i go hunt I'm walking by, you know, one or two cameras and pulling cards on the way to way to that location. So I don't really run that many cameras right exactly where I'm hunting, but I'll run them on the way there because you'd be amazed at what you, the woods is so thick. I've had cameras that were probably only 75 yards away from me and I sat all day, didn't see anything, you check the camera and a, a buck walked by. So you otherwise you're just losing that information the whole getting a deer down to the ground i mean the more information the better chance you're going to have so i'm just trying to capitalize on wherever i'm walking and and uh, get as much information as i can so how are you setting up these mineral sites or are you going into an area that looks good that you want to hunt are you going into you know, outside of like a, a bedding area where you know that there's going to be a large, you know, where you would expect, I mean, I don't know what the densities of deer are up there, but what you would expect to be, you know, a large population of does or, or just deer in the area to try to get inventory. I mean, how are you prioritizing where you're putting those for the most effective intel? There's some areas that just don't seem to hold many deer. So I want to try to get into a, an area that has has some deer in it. Because if you can keep the does concentrated to a certain area, your your chances are going to go up because then that's going to be an area that's going to get visited by the, the bucks in the rut. So, you know, part of the thing with the minerals is just to keep the does happy. Another part is you can start shaping trails with the mineral because they'll start using them to where you know you can make a couple trails combine and make it a little more heavily traveled and that can give you an advantage for where you're deciding to hang your tree stand so that's kind of the different way the minerals are kind of just a a good way to get pictures a good way to keep the does happy and kind of like concentrate deer and in, in maybe 
a certain area where you want them to be, where you have an advantage getting in or out or, or with a different stand. But they're not that important once it gets to season. I mean, they usually don't visit them a whole lot, especially the the bucks, it seems, once they hit hardhorn, they're not around them very much. So it's more of just an early season tactic to get pictures and kind of do what you can to, to influence the movement. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, to word this. Like, so I guess what happens when you get a good buck on camera are all of your cameras set up in areas that you can hunt are some strictly for inventory. Um, because I would say historically we don't run a lot of trail cameras. I might have one or two cameras out in areas that I think that there's deer. And then I get the pictures and I would call myself like a, a trail camera enthusiast instead of like using, actually using the pictures. It's like, Oh, look at this buck I've got on camera. Oh, look at this. Like everybody likes to get pictures and see these deer. Um, but it seems like the guys that are using them correctly are using them as a tool. So they, they have them in a spot for a reason. And then once they get that deer, then they have like a plan for the, the next step where I would say most of the guys that I know would be guys like me that say, I got a good deer or we've all walked by on public land where there's a ladder stand and then 10 feet in front of it, there's a trail camera and they're checking them at the exact same time. And it's just, you know, somewhat of a ridiculous setup. So most of, most of my spots end up kind of being like complex hunting location where there might be like a, a bigger community scrape in the middle. But then I found that I'm almost better off, you know, on a specific win, I can hunt that, that main scrape. But if I get like kind of iffy winds to this direction or that direction, I still want to be able to hunt that area, but I usually end up maybe a hundred yards for that main scrape on kind of like a, a secondary scrape. And some of those different spots I'll have cameras where if I walk by kind of one spot, there'll be a camera there. And then I, I move on to it to a different location. I think the, the spot I killed my buck last year, I had, uh, four tree stands. Probably they're all within like a hundred yards of each other for different winds. And then kind of picking off the trails coming into the, the one main scrape that they'd like to hit. And then on your way to wherever you're going, you're going to be crossing over trails or, or different things that kind of looks interesting that you're not sure about. And you'd be amazed how the deer will walk on your trail where you walked or, I mean, you might as, if you're going to walk by it, why you might as well have a camera out and see if you can learn something that, that you didn't, didn't know was going on. And then with the, the properties being so big and the fear of getting lost, a lot of the spots are like, okay, I know how to get to this tree. And then, okay, from this tree, I'm going to this tree. And so you're not, you know, if you have a spot that's 
fairly far in there, you kind of like leapfrog through a couple areas, you know, so you might have checked two cameras on the way to the real far spot on your way in there. And then now you've basically, instead of hunting that one location and having an idea what's going on there, you've gotten information from three different locations on that one day. And I can't, I can't run any cell cameras. I have one out now that actually works, but normally I don't have any cell service. So you're kind of pulling cards and the cameras, I, I started to notice that I don't, that they definitely tolerate the cameras way more. Basically, I just reach them up as high as I can reach them and angle them down. And I don't get any pictures like I used to where they're staring right at the camera. They're just not, it's not as natural for them to be looking up at a 45 degree angle. So you get kind of more natural pictures and you can figure out what's going on with who's moving through. And a lot of it ends up being seasonal to where, you know, I have some areas where I don't even have cameras out now because I usually don't get anything early, but then they end up being really good once the, once they really start to move during the rut where they just all of a sudden start showing up and the cameras also during the the season i can basically tell when a certain area is going to go hot because all of a sudden you'll have like four different does visit the camera in one day and you can just tell that one of them's going into heat and it's just about to to kick off and then during that next week you'll probably have every decent buck that you know about you'll get them on the on picture on that one camera. So when you, when you mentioned that, so that there's nothing going on or you, you don't get any pictures early and then you'll have these deer come in outside of like the, I mean, it, it does that only happen during the rut? Um, or do you see it just like, is there like a, a food source shift or something like that? And then I've also seen you um, post about like hunting late season and the thermal cover. So uh, I'd like, you know, for, for someone who understands that, I'd like to hear, you know, your take on, on that. So early, early season in the big woods is typically very difficult. You have to have a firm understanding what they're eating to have a chance so i've had i've had success on apple trees early and those are usually good for the first two weeks of season but there's not many secluded apple trees kind of in the middle of nowhere basically that's my holy grail when i'm walking around for my 100 miles in the spring if i can find an apple tree in the middle of nowhere it's like the you know the the heavens open up and there's a, a light shining onto it so if i can find that that's great if I can't find that, it's going to be more difficult. You know, you can kind of get on them on acorns. I know a bunch of different stuff they browse on, but they really, they really browse more than you would ever think. And they'll clean out large areas of, you know, whether it's maple shoots or you know, different berry bushes and stuff like that, where they'll, they'll browse them pretty heavy and you can see them. And I think a lot of people ignore big woods browse because it's so easy to walk by, you know, you just kind of discount it like, Oh, wow, a deer took a nibble there. And you kind of 
brush it off as random, but I mean, that's something that I, that I really pay attention to. And if they're, if they're nibbling on something on it, you know, it's potentially going to be a, a good spot to sit. Cause as soon as they start nibbling on it, every deer starts nibbling on it. And I don't, I've read some things where the, the protein values start to shoot up as the, the plant regenerates itself, but you can see the same plant in one location that's nibbled like crazy. And then you can see it in another spot and, and they're not touching it. And it's just, uh, you know, what the deer start to, to focus on. So that the early season is tough. Like, I mean, you need a, some specific circumstances to come together to be successful in, uh, you know, early October. And then a lot of the, the scrape activity that I'm talking about with cameras and stuff ends up going into, you know, the rut, the rut phases and the rut in, in the UP is kind of goofy because I've, you'll see that the does will cycle two, three times. And I think that's part of, part of the problem with, uh, you know, the population being out of balance. You're having deer that are born three months later than other, than other deer. And you can see that and it can be difficult to tell the difference between a two and three-year-old because you can have a young three-year-old or an old two-year-old. And if anybody has kids in sports, you know, three months difference <laughs> makes a makes a big difference. And I see that as a taxidermist. I do taxidermy on the side. And you can see it in the skull plates where, you know, a some two-year-olds and some three-year-olds are vir- virtually identical when it comes to, you know, how thick the, their skull plate is. So this last part of the question, I think, was thermal cover. So thermal cover, ba- we get so much snow up here, we get two to 300 inches of snow. So the deer are in survival mode once you get to that point. And any place you have a lot of pine trees and different trees that are going to block the wind that's thermal cover so it's going to make the snow depths way less underneath the tree a lot of that snow ends up evaporating when it's in the trees and then it's just kind of a you know a vacuum where that cold wind isn't isn't beating down on the deer all the time so i hunt a lot of really thick areas my sight distances aren't very far i think the average shot's probably 20 yards and it's thick, dark woods, and you know those are the areas that I usually key in on. I haven't had much luck around. You hear a lot of talk about clear cuts and stuff like that, but for me, that and they end up attracting more people, especially rifle hunters, where they can they can see further. And then there's obviously roads going into those areas, so I usually don't hunt them very much. I'm usually in the in the thick stuff. So. In that thermal cover and things like that, and I, I would ha- have to imagine that some of that snow that you're seeing is coming in into the season. I know, at least in our part of the UP, uh, the winters have been a bit milder, but we're quite a bit further south, I think, than, than where you're at. Um, are you seeing the deer, like, yarding up while they're in the season, or it, does that all happen, you know, january and on no i mean that's definitely something that i have to deal with 
is the is the migration. It's all a matter of how fast the snow comes. And usually I get snowed out of a lot of my spots sometime in December. Last year was unique where we didn't really get snow. Kind of made things more difficult for me because it was quite a bit different than, than what I normally have to deal with. But normally we'll get, I mean, we'll get 60 inches or something like that over a week and then all the deer start moving out and if if we can get snow real quick like that then you can get some kind of wandering bucks that are going to the wherever they're going and you'll have some big ones show up that that you haven't seen all year but also they they start shedding early like i don't think they take i don't see very many racked bucks make it all the way to a lot of the deer yards so i don't know if they shed somewhere along the way, and as soon as the the heavy snow kind of stresses them out where they're going to start migrating, that's when they, they start moving. And a lot of those spots get snowed out, so I've kind of made some adjustments where now I am have some areas closer to the, the areas they winter. And the areas they winter receive typically, you know, they might receive 85 inches compared to, you know, two, three hundred, so that's where the deer go to survive for the winter, but it's definitely something that changes every year, depending on how quick the snow comes. Yeah. I don't, I mean, you know, like I said, we've got listeners all the way, you know, everywhere. And I don't think I can think of any other places that have like a whitetail bow hunting season, kind of like we do where you would see that yarding like you would in the UP I mean, I guess like the areas, you know, like we talked about, like Maine or areas like that, you know, those guys really don't bow hunt very much because it is the big woods and and all that. So I think that that's a really interesting, like somewhat dynamic to have to deal with of, you know, buck shedding early and like stress and and, and all coming together. Have you, I mean, I just have to ask because I'm trying to think about it for myself, like, have you been in a situation where you're you're seeing that migration and all of the those deer, all those eyes, all those noses at the same time? I mean, I've hunted kind of the fringes of it, and then you see them come into the areas and that. I think the one year it was crazy because my brother came up here to hunt late season, and he was going to be up here for a week. And I think we got a foot of snow every single day, but it was like, every single day a different random buck would come through and they were all like i mean we're talking five seven year old you know big ones were like just wandering through so the snow came so fast that they got they got pushed out of where they were at and they're they're starting to move and they seem to you know they'll start moving and then they'll stage in an area and for a while i thought you know, in those same areas where I was seeing them, that if I could get back in there, that they'd still be there. So I ended up, you know, I was going to buy an ATV with tracks or a snowmobile or whatever the heck I needed. But then I ended up doing it one time and I went back there and it was a ghost town. So I think once once the snow levels to get to, get to the point where I can't even get my vehicle back there was when they basically would start pushing out and then they're, they're moving to there. And that the migration and wintering areas are pretty well known by, I mean, they're on the DNR map and everything. They'll mark, 
marked where where the deer winter and it's usually near the near the lake where they're getting less snow but it's just a timing thing because sometimes it happens in the middle of december sometimes like this year it didn't really happen it was like a trickle migration where you know the deer kind of held up and and were doing kind of some goofy things because i think you know they were kind of getting impatient and weren't sure what was going on because we got way less i think we we were down a thousand or we were down a hundred inches this year for snowfall and so you ended up like you said killing a, a a buck that you were after that you had a ton of history with like mid-december um can you tell us a little bit about that hunt and and maybe that deer and the the story behind it because it it seems like you know, I would say, I, I don't know, John, do you have any situations like other than, I mean, maybe when you were, when you were young hunting, but like history with deer, like I don't, I couldn't tell you like one single deer that I've ever seen, you know, multiple times or, or anything like that. I mean, not, I, no, not since I was, you know, the 10 point I killed with my gun, which we, we, you know, that was back behind my dad's house and, you know. We've seen them, you know, year after year, and then finally I got them, but <clears throat> no. I, I mean, I would say that that would be one of the things where where guys are also trying to, you know, maybe they saw a deer last year and now it's uh, alive again, you know, it's back on camera or they've, they're getting intel. Or, I mean, for me, you know, you you're talking about that, um, like, the community scrapes and having cameras out. And I'm just like over here, like taking notes about things for me. Cause I found a community scrape last year that I had a camera on and I didn't check until late in the season. And man, it had, you know, kind of like what you're talking about after October 23rd, every buck in this, you know, in the County was on this scrape at some point. And, so now it's kind of neat for me. I had a buck just show up on my one of my cameras. That's I have this camera now, not on the scrape, but where I want to hunt. Um, just showed up today, and so it's like, well, maybe I can go back and see if it was from last year or or whatever. But I think trying to piece together like if these deer are still alive, how to track them, hunt them all of that and i think you've got a lot of that and with this deer right yeah i think i mean a lot of those if you can get them on the scrapes because there's times they'll like skirt the scrapes so you know you may only get like one or two pictures but they're still using that area and they're kind of you know they're they're tipping their hand a little bit so this particular deer, I might have saw him in 2016. I'm not sure because most of the deer in this section are the older deer are just like thicker eight pointers. And and so he was, well, he ended up being, he he has a 10 point frame, but no brow tines. So you, <laughs> you, could, you can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was kind of unique because he had the, he looked like a 10 pointer in most of the pictures, but he had no brow tines. So I might have saw him in 2016 because that there's a, like a, a younger 10 or whatever. And then I got him on camera for sure in 2017. I was getting some pictures of him, but he was really nocturnal. I wasn't really on him very good, you know. So I don't think I saw him in 2017. In 2018, 
was a really good deer where I was a year where I was seeing, you know, a lot of different bucks. And I ended up missing this particular buck on November 17th with my bow. So he came in chasing two does and he ended up being on, you know, my weak side and there was a bunch of brush and I was on my tippy toes and I ended up skyboxing it over his back. So <laughs> I missed him in 2018. And then, uh, 2019 was a goofy November cause it was down into the single digits. And I ended up kind of making the mistake. I had a, a couple stands set up and I ended up kind of sitting those locations too much. I, I was using at the time a, a heater bodysuit and I'd either need a tree stand or it kind of worked okay with my saddle, but it would kind of ride up. So I wasn't as mobile as I needed to be that, that year. So I think the big, the big change I made coming in was I ended up getting one of those IWAM suits mm -hmm. and your, and your bridge actually that has two zippers on either side and your bridge fits right through those zippers. And it, it works perfect for saddle hunting. I ended up shooting two deer out of this year, including the, this big one. So I was more, I was more mobile. I was able to bounce around a little bit more when I needed to. And he was still really nocturnal. I didn't have any, I had in four years, I never had a daylight picture of him. So he was, he was really kind of playing with me a bit where I'd see him, see him on camera, you know, later 10 o'clock at night in one location. And then I'd get him in the morning at another location. And he actually went by my camera 10 minutes before I went by my camera on my way to my tree one morning. So I was in the ball game, but he was just, he was one step ahead of me. And then November 12th, he ended up sneaking up on me. I was sitting a scrape. I was kind of in a tree I'd never been. It wasn't a very big, it was like a smaller oak tree. I thought the deer would come by the scrape. And then I heard a deer behind me. I looked over and it's him coming up this little, this little hill and it's, it's either I'm going to grab my bow and make a shot or it's not going to happen. So I went to reach and he picked me off and I've never seen a deer spook so bad in my life. Like he jumped out of his skin and I was like, well, that's, that's not very good. <laughs> I didn't see him for a month after that. But then all of a sudden he came back and he was hanging out with this other, this other eight pointer that I, that I knew pretty good that I've seen that I'd seen a bunch of different times and the camera picture was kind of weird because the one eight pointer was at the scrape. And then this big one was kind of just standing behind him. but you could tell that the air that the eight pointer wasn't really worried about him. And I was like thinking what was going on there. It looks like he's just hanging out with them. And I wasn't sure if the big one I shot was getting antsy to migrate and he was just hanging out with this other deer. And I actually called my brother because he was supposed to, he was coming up in two days. And I said, I think we can, this is the first time I think we really can kill this deer because he's acting goofy. He's hanging out with this other one that's not too bright. So <laughs> we'll just, we'll just hunt that other one and hopefully he'll be, he'll be walking by him. So sure enough, the next day I went to the, it was like a 40 mile an hour wind, ended up not going in the morning because I was worried about my tree blowing over 
So I sat, I didn't hunt the morning. I went there in the afternoon. It was probably about a 35 mile an hour wind with snow. And sure enough, 20 minutes before dark, right at the corner of my eye, I see that, that other eight pointer. And I'm just thinking about, I, unfortunately, I didn't get the, get the shot on film. So I was just thinking about hitting my trigger for my Tacticam to turn on a couple different cameras. And then I pick off the bigger one kind of on a skirt trail going, going away from me where, you know, there's like no time. The shot has to happen right now. So I grabbed my bow. It was a pretty, it was a heavier quartering away shot. Shot looked good. Kind of put it right in front of the hip where it's going to ride up through most everything. Deer looked good running off where he kind of like stumbled sideways and looked like for sure he was done. But I never saw him go down, got down out of the tree, couldn't find my arrow, didn't find any blood. And then you're starting to think, you know, geez, did I not? Maybe he just stumbled because he tripped on this log and you're kind of thinking what the heck you should do. So then ended up making the decision to to pull out and come back in the morning. And sure enough, the arrow had gone completely through him and was hidden underneath a, a log and he probably only went about 75 yards but it was kind of a weird track job where I, I wasn't even sure i was going to find him and i ended up just looking over and he was laying about 10 yards from me <laughs> that's that's pretty crazy just to think of like the thought process of saying okay well i know this other deer is going to be over here this is what you need and when you said like it's not very bright like that. <laughs> so how old was that deer? I mean, I've had the jaw looked at, I think he was seven, but I'd have, I haven't sent the tooth in. Like I, I, I'll bring him to the DNR and have him aged in that. And, you know, a lot of them, once they get the bigger ones seem to be all right in that five, six range when you see him. Cause even that, the one that I'm talking about, that's not bright. He's, uh, so he made it through for sure. I think he might've had, I might've had him on camera when he shed. And so he'll be, he'll be four or five. And so for guys outside of Michigan, for people listening in Iowa or or wherever. So what is a a four-year-old deer score here in, in Michigan's UP or a, six or seven year old deer. I mean, and even as a, as a taxidermist, you've got to see kind of like the full scope of even these young D, you know, a young two and an old three, etc. So from what I've like, I don't, I've never really scored technically any of my deer, like my brother will measure them and add them up and I don't do duck deductions and anything like that. So like I have a ballpark idea, but, but I, I don't want to throw a number where people are going to say that's wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's right. He'd be right around like 140 okay. right in that ball. Based on like the one I shot in Wisconsin, I think was like somewhere in that. And this one has longer tines and except he doesn't have, he's longer tines, a little thicker and he doesn't have brow tines. So, so I'd say like most of like as a taxidermist, usually the good bucks that I get in, are 
probably in that 130, 140 range. And they're, you know, they're mostly chocolate horned, a little bit of mass. Like I got another one in last year that only had, you know, I mean, short tines, but thick. So they're, they're big bodies. I think like I had one trail camera picture of them where, I mean, this deer looked like he was 300 pounds. When I shot him, he was totally worn down. He had zero fat on like underneath his hide. He, it was weird because he had, his organs were covered in fat. Like his whole chest compartment had fat in it. So I don't know if that's, was his reserves for the year, but his organs were all covered in fat. And then he had, he had a big wound underneath his armpit. So I think he was in tough shape where he wanted to, he wanted to leave, but for whatever reason, he, he wanted some company when he was leaving. So he was kind of hanging out, eating. He wasn't, he wasn't chasing does anymore, really doing anything. I think he just wanted to take off with that other buck who was, he would that one was still kind of you know thinking about doing some doing some breeding but yeah i mean looking around like the the basement here i see john look over here and look there and you know i mean i've killed a couple what i would say are three and a half year old michigan bucks here that are a hundred inches and then there's a i would say a three-year-old ohio buck over there that we did the same thing and just green scored them you know whatever and it was 150 and five eights and the deer's like his body compared to like the the one three and a half year old michigan buck i killed he was 187 pounds and that one in ohio was definitely not that it was a tiny little deer he'd be lucky to go 130 and like my dad in the up the one like i said we've killed a couple of bigger bucks and my dad's maybe goes 120 but it was it it had hung for seven days and was 198 pounds when we dropped it off to the processor i mean it was a very large deer but like the genetics or the antlers or or whatever that's not where the you know where his resources were going yeah, they don't they don't put the gains on because the one I shot, like he might even have been bigger last year. And for the last three years, he's probably looked pretty much the same. Like he hasn't put on much of anything. But it's kind of it's it's different. I think yeah, the more you look around, you'll find pockets of whether it's genetics or, or food or what. Cause I two years ago I found a different area that had you know, way more acorns and even the two-year-olds that I was getting pictures of were like split brow tine, like 12 pointers and stuff. So I'm thinking there's, you know, there's different genetic pockets and stuff. And there's actually, it'll be interesting because I got one picture of like a non-typical one up there too, to see if he's, I only had one picture the whole year. So if I can get get on that one, that'll be pretty cool. But we'll see if he shows up. So for all of the states that you've hunted and all of the, I, I don't know, I, I just I want to say like due diligence that you've put in, all of the preparation, you know, hunting multiple states. Um, for guys, for the for the listener that's trying to like make that jump from one. Um, 
class of deer, whether it's killing their first buck or it's, you know, killing their first eight pointer or, or, or killing a, an age class deer. Um, I, I guess across all the States, as far as like, when you talk about like spots or setups other than, and I think that is, is key. And we talk about that a lot here, the, the confidence portion, but like, what is the, the commonality to, you know, making that jump from, I guess what I would term being a hunter to being a, a killer. Right. Yeah. I think a big part of it is, you know, if you're able to have a year round approach, it just, uh, you know, if you're able to gain some information before the season starts, you're going to be at an advantage compared to if you're playing from behind, trying to catch up and get, get information. So, I mean, the more time you can put into it on a year round basis, the better. And I think the other big part of it is you have to hunt your own hunt. Like I know what I will do and what I can do to be successful. But like, if you're, if you're probably not going to walk in a mile to hunt more than a couple times a year, there's almost no point in scouting those areas. Like you have to realize, you know, what are you going to honestly do with your time? And if you're a guy who's not going to go in that far, then spend your time scouting spots close to the road. I mean, you have to figure out what you're honestly going to do and try to play to your strengths, build your weaknesses. And, you know, once you're able to get some success, I mean, do whatever you can to, to recreate that and find similar situations where you can put yourself where you're, you'd have a reasonable, reasonable chance to, to get it done again. I think, I mean, I think I've said that, um, said this before is it comes down to what you just said. You got to put the time in and everyone's looking for that magic, you know, quick button where, Oh, what's the hot sign? No, well, get out there and find it. You got to get out there and put feet on the ground and do some scouting. Those are the guys, like everyone that we've talked to that are successful doing this, they, they put in a ton of time. But I think also like what I found, like, um, I don't know, like I had like a revelation, like through like what he was saying there in that statement is that we talk about that all the time. When we talk about elk hunting, we talk about realistic expectations and like, what are you willing to do and understand that you're, you know, not going to go in and pack a bull out by yourself seven miles in, but it never really clicked for me, at least for, for whitetail hunting. I always just think of, you know, well, that's what you have to do or, or whatever. So I think that that's extremely insightful. Yeah, it is. But I've, I've thought that before, like, well, like the time I was up in the swamp and I mean, I was only what, not even three quarters of a mile off the road, but it took me two hours to get to it. It's like, and the big doe come through and I was like, well, man, I'd fill my tag, but man, no one would ever come out here and even (laughs) help me. And if they did, they wouldn't be my friends anymore because they'd be like, what the, f- what the hell is wrong with you shooting a doe out here in this shit? But <laughs> uh, you got to know your limits. And I even, like, I, 
I mean, even for me, I mean, I, I really don't want to go further than a mile. Like the guys that say they're going three miles, like that's crazy. And how many times are you going to do it? Like if you, if you're only going to do it once, like you're made, I mean, you could get lucky, but I mean, usually you have to build, build on a hunt and keep doing it. I mean, are you going to do that five days in a row all day and, you know, whether it's different access or where can you, where can you get, get in easier? I mean, I think a lot of guys kind of, they scout way beyond their abilities where it's just becomes a waste of time. So kind of do what you're going to do, what you're reasonably going to do. If you need to, there's plenty of good spots around roads and easy access spots. You just could spend your time looking for those spots. Yeah. I, I, as we go through this and we're, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, but there's a lot of things that you've said in here that have just been like, I'm so happy. Like when you're like, you know, I don't want to get lost. Like nobody says that. Like everybody says, Oh yeah, I know how to get here. And I'm great at, uh, navigating. You know, I mean, you talk to Dan, Dan Infall, he's like, I'm never lost. You know, there's a road somewhere here. And it's like, well, I, I've been, all but lost up there in the UP oh, and man. uh I it is I saw one light and just walked towards that light until I got to where I was familiar with um but that and saying you know there's plenty of good spots close I mean everything this has been like like I say a really great and like realistic down to earth podcast on like how to help guys get to that next level. I think, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I appreciate it. Well, it was fun. Definitely well, enjoy it. Enjoy uh, the podcast you guys are putting out and definitely looking forward to this fall. One of the questions I always ask our guests, um, what's your bow and what's your setup? I'm shooting the lone wolf custom gear Lobo, which is, basically the dart and maverick which i'm actually i i didn't know what to think of it when i first got it but it's exceeded all my expectations and extremely forgiving so i i'm a i'm a dart and fan after shooting that so that's cool i have that bow and then uh shooting black eagle deep impacts with a single bevel helix probably have like 200 grains up front and then uh spot hog tommy hog sight and uh smackdown fall away rest sweet now it's funny i was i think this is what made me like deep dive into your like history because you had you had posted something say talking about your bow and talking about like being superstitious and so, you know, we talk a lot and we talked actually on the last podcast about like, you know, there, is it time in the woods or is it gear that helps you, you know, kill deer or whatever? And you had said, you know, you think that it's confidence that kills more than, than either of those, which is again, very insightful and, and, and great for, for the listener. But it was like, that's such a sports that like I, I 
high school baseball never washed my uniform for the entire year. <laughs> like I never touched the lines going on or off the field, you know? So I guess what other superstitions do you have? Like <laughs> along with your bow, you know, the, the lucky charm, whatever works, whatever gives you, you confidence. But um, do you have one that was from playing hockey? And then do you have an, anything for, uh, for hunting that is like, the same breakfast or you know, one of the superstitions there. I, I try not to be superstitious too bad, but I mean, when something's works, it works. So like with that bow, I, I went four for four this year and I don't think anything ran over 75 yards. So I actually had a new bow bought and I sold the, the new bow for the used bow price. So I wasn't going to get rid of the one I had, but stick with what works. You know, I love uh, Oreo cookies in the tree. I can tell you that. But, but other than that, I mean, I'm not that, I try not to be superstitious. It's just, uh, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be dedicated. You get, you have to enjoy the grind. You have to enjoy the process. Cause if you enjoy the process, if you enjoy getting up, you enjoy getting your tree quietly without spooking anything. You, you enjoy getting in there clean. You enjoy sitting there all day. I mean, you're always going to be rewarded at the end you know you don't need to kill i mean i remember i'd go a week and it didn't see a deer but i mean i was hunting clean i was happy i was doing what i needed to do i knew that you know things are going to happen because i'm doing i'm doing my job just waiting for the the deer to cooperate so i mean just uh you know pay attention to the details don't get sloppy and Cause that's when you cost yourself an opportunity. You might get one, two opportunities a year. And if you're not paying attention, I mean, you just wasted a tremendous amount of time. Exactly. Exactly, man. I, I really appreciate this. Where can people follow along with, you know, your hunts, what you're doing, everything throughout the season. So, yeah. So the, the, most of the stuff from this year should be on the, the Whitedale Addictions TV show, which is on the Lone Wolf Custom Gear YouTube page. So this is the first year I ever filmed. So my filming is low-budget filming. I I think I did it with a Tacticam and a cell phone. So hopefully it's a, it's a product people enjoy to watch. Other than that, my Facebook is Ranger Matthews, my fake friend who uh, <laughs> carries the torch for me on Facebook. And... On Instagram, I think it's under my real name, Dieter Cocken, or Face Off Taxidermy is my, my side business for taxidermy. So that's Instagram. And then I think I have a couple videos on Facebook. But other than that, on the, I guess on the, I like to post on the, the Mobile Hunters United site. So over there, there's a lot of good conversations going. So if you're not a, not a member, get over there. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on. Thank you.